The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny System, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny System with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Despite director Mark Sullivan's claims at the time that he took this so seriously, very little changed as a result of this. The service got a huge black eye. The director tried to, you know, get tough and essentially say to Congress and to the White House, all of which were really angry, you know, heads were going to roll. He was going to fire people to show how seriously he took that. And he did. Uh, move to force people to resign, taking away their security clearances. Very little in the culture of the service changed because the service had reached a point of arrogance. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, 2021. The United States Secret Service has many important missions, the most public of which is protecting the President of the United States. And in this mission, Its motto is zero fail. There is no window for them to let their guard down when it comes to protecting the Commander-in-Chief. And yet, the past several decades of the Secret Service's protection have seen gaps, have seen mistakes, and have seen some exposures of some fundamental problems within the Secret Service itself. Carol Lennig is the national investigative reporter at the Washington Post and can't seem to stop collecting Pulitzer Prizes for her reporting on the Secret Service as well as the Trump presidency and many other topics. She is also the author of the new book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. She sat down with me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about the United States Secret Service, its mission, its challenges, and potential reforms to get over some of its most fundamental flaws. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, Carol Lennig on the United States Secret Service and what to do about it. So, Carol, let's go back a bit. I want to spend a lot of time on the current issues and concerns and some of the recent incidents involving the Secret Service that you've been reporting on for the last 10 years or so. But let's go back first to some of the antecedents. Let's go back not to the entire history of the Secret Service, but some 60 years ago when there really was a dramatic change in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. If I have it right, Around that time, John Kennedy had about 34 agents at the White House in six-man teams, and the Secret Service as a whole only had about 300 agents and a $5 million budget, which is ridiculous compared to the 
many thousands of personnel now and the billions of dollars in the budget. But talk a little bit about that Kennedy era and what James Rowley in particular was trying to do even before the Kennedy assassination, recognizing the shortfalls of the Secret Service. In the year and a half before that traumatic event, Jim Rowley had been basically on a full court press to try to add agents Mm -hmm. to the detail for the president, for the first lady, and for the agency writ large. He knew, as his agents knew, that they were treading water. They were barely getting it done. And part of the reason for that was that President Kennedy was a young, vibrant, go, go, go jet setter in his real life. And as president, he was traveling as much as three times more often than his predecessors, older gentlemen who stayed in the White House a lot of the time, made some foreign trips, but not many. And Kennedy was just go, go. And agents described to me, who, if you can believe it, are still alive, agents who had been by his side at that time said they literally would get home, drop off a bag or a suitcase of dirty laundry. They had just enough time to stop at their own doorstep to pick up a new fresh bag from their wives and head back out on the road. Wow. So Rowley knew they were not getting it done. And then he wasn't envisioning danger. He was just envisioning exhaustion. And in fact, on the day that Kennedy was killed, as many as 10 of the most senior presidential protection agents were off duty because they were exhausted or were on other trips trying to prepare security plans for the next place that Kennedy was scheduled to go, essentially hopscotching from city to city to lay the groundwork for a secure trip. I think that's one of the real misunderstandings about the Secret Service, in particular the presidential detail, is they have to prepare everywhere the president is going to go, weeks, sometimes months in advance, And that requires, obviously, personnel. And that means that there are people who are not at the White House or at other locations where the president is. And in the Kennedy case, uh, it was one of the many things that the Warren Commission pointed to as an inadequacy of the Secret Service. Am I right? That's exactly right. The Warren Commission was really concerned about that very point. And, you know, in that time frame, Many of the agents kind of had the same DNA that has been true for the service going forward. It's a mindset of not complaining, not whining, but just basically saying, yes, sir, we'll get it done. Whether that's Herculean, physically draining, or literally physically impossible, that is the Secret Service response. We'll get it done, sir. And it's it's a problem. The preparations are just, to me, even as a, as a newcomer, but I, who has studied it a lot over the last 10 years, it is just shocking how much work goes into every visit. They call it preparing for game day, but you know the advance agent and a team of agents and officers will walk the grounds of a convention center for two days straight, making sure they walk every step the president walks, Mm -hmm. making sure that they see every single line of sight where the president is 
is moving from and to so that there's never a place from which there's an open shot, essentially, as there was that day in, in Dallas in 1963. I will say, like so many people who have worked in various parts of the U.S. government, I had the opportunity while overseas to work with the Secret Service who were preparing for a protectee visit. And I was absolutely astounded by the level of detail, by the literally the matter of inches of, of so many things that they were focused on as potential threats that had not even crossed my relatively paranoid mind. <laughs> and that that does require, obviously, skill. That does require training. But it does require focus. It requires you to be awake and alert because you can't be thinking that way and remembering everything that you need to follow up on if you haven't gotten any sleep because you've been working 44 straight days without fail. To me, what's interesting in your reporting is across the decades, across different directors, across different teams of, of agents, you hear the same stories that the directors will go to Congress and say, we can't do the mission that we have been assigned to do given the funding and the personnel structure that we have, help us before there's a disaster. And when the help doesn't come, they find a way to do it anyway, normally by breaking the backs of the employees. And it was true in Kennedy's time and true right up until the most recent administration. David, you put that so well, breaking the backs, that's how they get it done. You know, I remember interviewing a very senior agent who didn't want his name used as many many did not because it's you know against their their code and their rules to talk about the agency in a way that reflects poorly on it but they wanted to be honest and truthful and this one very senior sort of standout agent who's been known for a long time told me that essentially the agency survives and succeeds on the backs of incredibly dedicated men and women who just won't give up. I mean, in a way they're like, they're like special operators without the drama, you know, special operators without the, without the television show. (laughs) They really have such a grueling job because imagine your head on a swivel, just constantly on the rope line, watching for the gun, watching for the hand that's coming forward to the president to see, is it empty or does it have a weapon? And like your entire day for 12 hours is that until the man, the president is safely in the beast, in the limo or in the white house, safely behind essentially a perfect bubble. It's exhausting and grueling. And to do it day after day, week after week, year after year, I don't know how I I couldn't do it. I would crumple. (laughs) And they have to do it. I I mean, one of the things you've mentioned is they have to do it sometimes against the very people they're designed to protect. Uh, We'll talk about the more recent presidents in a few minutes, but share with us a story or two from Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon, some of the things that the Secret Service was being asked to do or not to do that made their job harder. Well, let's start with Kennedy. I mean, in the days before he was killed, and actually it had been true for him months before his assassination, but he really did not like the Secret Service agents being so close to him. He just wandered off into crowds of people, wanted to do it alone, didn't want people at his shoulder because he didn't want the impression that he had to be protected 
from his voters. And, and trust me, that comes up over and over again with presidents. They don't want to look like mm-hmm. they need a palace guard. Right. And they also want to look like an everyman, you know, not some special royal who's got a special security team. There are other presidents of other countries and premiers and kings who think that those trappings are attractive. American presidents don't. Kennedy tried, in the days before he was killed, insisted to his detail leader who was with him in Florida and Texas, that he did not want the agents sitting on the back of the limousine. It was too close. It looked oppressive. And he also wanted the limousine to be open. It was a convertible. And he wanted the open top because he wanted voters to see him cruising through their town. Voters loved this handsome, virile man with his gorgeous wife at his side. And that was a vote getter. That was another vote cast just by doing that. So both of those things made him more exposed and and did ultimately lead to his death. Agents weren't happy about that. Clint Hill asked his, his boss, are you sure we're not allowed to get on the back of the limousine? And in the end, Clint Hill, who was the agent famously responsible for the first lady Mm -hmm. in the end in Dallas, when the shots are fired and he clambers onto the back of that limo, he is thinking in his head that very moment. Oh my God, if I'd only been closer, if I'd only been on the back of the limousine instead of in a follow-up car, I would have been that much closer to get between the bullet and the president, which was his goal to, to die for the president. Right. The same thing happens with, you know, shockingly to me, I couldn't believe this when I read this, these letters in the, in the presidential archives after Johnson is sworn in as president Mm -hmm. has literally watched Kennedy killed knows of the assault on the country, the trauma to the nation, everyone is suffering. He also insists on agents getting further away from him. And he wants fewer presidential detail members and fights with Director Rowley, who's pressuring to have more agents. The president, Johnson, says to Rowley, I don't need this. And the taxpayers are going to be mad. They're going to be angry that I have all these people alongside me. And I, I, I can't take that when I go to the polls in November. It's such a short-sighted view. Rowley is flabbergasted and sort of secretly goes around the president's back and works with his treasury secretary to get Congress's buy-in. Can you imagine going around the president to get him the protection he needs? But that's what Rowley does. Nixon is a little bit different. He's not so worried about having protection, but he's trying to deploy the agents to do sort of his dirty work. And it's also a a little bit shocking. He wants the Secret Service to sign off on renovations to his home in Mm -hmm. Florida because he wants a a replacement of a gatehouse and he wants that his wife uses to look over the ocean. He wants a new furnace, which is problematic, and his staff argue to the Secret Service that, hey, you know, the president could die or be, you know, asphyxiated by all this smoke if we don't get this fixed. It's a security problem. Well, really, it was a renovation the president should have paid for. The Secret Service is a little bit 
disheartened by by Nixon's attempts. Yeah. Nixon also, like Trump in the future, Nixon also tries to deploy the Secret Service to help him sort of curate an image of a law and order president. He wants the Secret Service to help him goad anti-war and anti-Nixon protesters so that Nixon has better footage and camera images of these vicious protesters. But really, Nixon is trying to get his staff and the Secret Service to help create those images and stoke those protesters again to create the the better chance for Nixon to be reelected as this man who will protect you from the the dangerous, you know, evil Mm. protesters. All of that and and much more points to a very difficult job for the primary mission of the Secret Service, the one you focus on the most, which is protecting the president when you have presidents who are making the job harder. And in, in some ways, as you've talked about, it's about not wanting a detail around them. In some cases, Kennedy running around Washington at night, trying to evade his security detail, Lyndon Johnson <laughs> shooting out the tires of a Secret Service vehicle that gets too close to him. That makes it really difficult. But there's also those around the president, often those image curators who say, no, we, we don't want the image of people coming to meet the president and having to go through a magnetometer. We don't want that to happen. And what that can lead to, whether it's the crowd being too close, whether it's not screening people close to the president, is what we had with Ronald Reagan. And I think most people are familiar with the Reagan assassination well enough, but not many people are familiar with the dramatic changes that the Secret Service was able to push through after the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Talk a little bit about how if not the culture of the Secret Service, at least many of the operations of the Secret Service changed after John Hinckley's attempt on Reagan's life. Really a smart thing to focus on, David. And I'm just going to add one thing, which is the day before. So before Reagan is is nearly fatally wounded, nearly dies, and many in the American public didn't know at the time how close Reagan came to dying that day, lost more than half of his blood. It's just amazing. But the day before that, the deputy in charge of his presidential detail had a huge knockdown drag out fight with the deputy White House chief of staff who wanted the Reagans to be able to walk outside of the White House front lawn on the north side, walk across the park, Lafayette Square, and go to the church, the famous church the presidents always visit at St. John's. They have this huge argument where the, the agent, the supervisory agent says he cannot do that. We have to have agents with him. We want to be in a protected car. The deputy chief of staff for the White House says, are you telling me, Bobby, that we can't have an American president walk down a downtown street in Washington, D.C.? And the deputy for the detail says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And in fact, he was proven right the very next day. You can't safely have a president walk down the street and assume everything's going to be okay Mm -hmm. unless that bubble is absolutely impervious. So after, again, Reagan nearly dies, a number of changes are made. One, intense screening of everyone who comes close to the president at a public event. They add magnetometers at public events so that a gun will be caught before you actually get close to the president. Mm 
you know, Hinckley shockingly was able to get within yards of the president's limousine because he kind of snuck around the back, essentially, mm-hmm. inserted himself into a group of right. cameramen um, who had not been screened, which was a huge security failure on the part of the Secret Service. They did everything else right that day in terms of getting the president out, but that failure to screen was a problem. Um, there is a fight about the addition of magnetometers because even after, again, the near fatality that all the White House staff have personally experienced that trauma, they're worried that visitors and guests and, and very importantly, donors are going to be offended by being, you know, magged as the verb goes before they come to see the president. But ultimately, that that is is successful. There are other things that are added. You know, from then on, the president's entry and exit to buildings, convention centers, hotels, is called covered arrival. New tents are erected to sort of protect his inward and outward movements, so it's not he's not such a sitting duck in those places where he's expected to go. And some some assassin could sort of plan to be in that area. Uh, Reagan made a funny joke to an agent that I interviewed, one of his detail leaders. And he said, essentially, Joe Petro is the name of the agent. He said to Joe, you know, as they were exiting a hotel basement and entering through the garage, which was really a loading zone for trash, often that's how the president would then from then on enter rooms. He said to Joe, you know, I wouldn't know that I was the president and that I was going somewhere important unless I smelled trash, because that's how he always from then on (laughs) entered buildings was through a smelly garbage uh, holding area. But it worked. It works. It works. (laughs) What a change, too. I mean, you think about the first half of the country's history or so. Citizens could often walk into the White House, and sometimes they did walk right in and start a conversation with the President of the United States living there. There may have been a a local police officer nearby, but they often didn't interfere because it was seen as the people's house. And now we have a situation where it's becoming normal in the post-Reagan era for there to be such screenings and such a burden placed upon anybody who's going to be even close to the body of the president. Now, that also changes a bit about how the Secret Service officers themselves react because they feel like there has been some screening. They feel like the outer perimeters have worked. And that's a bit of a preview for some stories we'll get to later about how the idea of successive perimeters can fail. But there's another issue that happens with the agents. And this is an issue that came up with the Clinton administration. It is fairly widely known that Hillary Clinton uh, as first lady was not a fan of the secret service. She did not want them on the second floor in the, in the residence. She did not want them to be seen when she was moving through the spaces there. But the fact is there were still secret service agents around the president, around the oval office enough that it became a legal issue when a secret (laughs) service agent became a fact witness to a potential crime Talk through how the Secret Service was actually at the center of a case that made it to the Supreme Court. This was such a dramatic and painful period for the Secret Service because 
The motto of the service is worthy of trust and confidence. The reason for that motto is many fold. You know, the idea that you can always rely on this team of patriots to protect the president and protect ultimately the stability of our democracy. But the other part of worthy and trust and confidence is really the confidence of the president and the interior workings of the White House. In order for agents to feel sure that they can protect the president, they have to convey that they're not going to share any confidences that they witness and experience while they're right at the right shoulder of the man, the boss. You know, they are there when you know, a president has a fight with his daughter or his wife. They are there when the president is making decisions about war, about a strike on a terror cell, on a sensitive diplomatic matter that could start a war if it was revealed. So confidence is a very important part of the agents. And they believe that if they're not close to that shoulder, then the person, the president is not safe that seconds count. That's something they learned with Kennedy, and it's something they relearned with Reagan. With the Clintons, Mrs. Clinton is really, you know, quite (laughs) distrustful of the agents. I mean, she has her reasons. The agents are, are, are in love with the Bush family, not so in love with Hillary Clinton. And some stories leak, and she believes that the leaks have come from agents who are not fans of her and possibly not fans of her husband. So she's starting to feel like her privacy is being violated by them, that they're not worthy of trust and confidence. Meanwhile, as we all now know, President Clinton is carrying out a series of relationships outside of his marriage, but most importantly, and most famously, with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. And the investigators who come to learn this piece of information want to know everyone who can corroborate whether or not President Clinton has lied about being in private alone with Monica Lewinsky. You know, Ken Starr begins to realize there aren't a lot of witnesses to these Saturday morning meetings in the Oval Office, except Secret Service officers and agents who are steadily, readily protecting him and the building. And he decides he's going to subpoena them. A fight ensues in which Secret Service Director Lou Merletti decides he cannot allow this because if they are subpoenaed and forced to break those confidences, both President Clinton and presidents for time evermore in the future may push Secret Service agents further away. It ends up in the Supreme Court The Department of Justice and several lawyers for the Secret Service and elsewhere tell Merletti there is no chance in hell that he's going to succeed because anybody who's a witness to a Mm -hmm. potential crime is fair game for a subpoena to testify. And Mm -hmm. indeed, Merletti loses multiple times and agents and officers are compelled to explain that, yes, in fact, they did see Monica Lewinsky enter the Oval Office and she was alone with the president. And it helps confirm essentially Ken Starr's evidence that Clinton lied. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. 
eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Carol, do you think that that is the right choice? You've looked at these issues as carefully as anyone. Do you think that, in fact, the Secret Service needs to have some kind of exemption in order to better protect the president by having the trust of the president and those around the president? You know, that's a really hard question because I respect and understand the feeling that agents have, some whom I revere, who've told me that this was incredibly awkward. However, agents that I revere have also told me in confidence that there is no special promise that if a president is engaged in something that is improper, unethical, or potentially criminal, there is no special promise that agents are going to take that to the grave. So I would say I'm going to lean towards the agents who, again, were right in the midst of this and said to me, it was our duty to comply with the law and with the law of the land, the Supreme Court's view that witnesses to a potential crime have to cough it up, just as reporters also don't have some special protection from revealing information about their sources if it is critical to the evidence in a criminal investigation. Sure. And I know it's not the subject of your work, but it is striking when you compare this to the practices of, shall we say, presidential protection in many countries around the world where there are such exemptions and the kind of nightmares that leads to in terms of rule of law and in terms of oppression using the excuse of presidential protection or head of state protection. Let's move forward to a a few cases here. Now, I know in the Obama administration, there were a few cases that were certainly publicized at the time, but not widely remembered now of bullets hitting the White House or someone getting on the White House grounds and actually making it into the residence. But the thing that probably got the most attention for good reason, because it highlighted so many problems with the culture of the Secret Service as it had evolved was the uh, situation in Cartagena, Colombia. Talk a little bit about, I think it was April 2012, what happened there in brief, and then what the impact was on the Secret Service going forward. This incident became, you know, an international scandal, and at the time was the most humiliating episode in the Secret Service's history, other than, you know, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. If you can believe it, it was on par with that at the time. And it is indeed the incident that drew me by accident into covering the Secret Hmm. Service. This is 2012 in April. 
a colleague of mine broke the story that it, more than a dozen or roughly a dozen agents had been shipped back unceremoniously from Cartagena because they were under investigation for basically turning this presidential trip by President Obama into a boys gone wild bachelor weekend where they got drunk, stayed out all night, were so hammered, some of them passed out, brought prostitutes back to their hotel rooms uh, where they were staying in the hours before President Obama was supposed to arrive, and they were supposed to be making security plans for his, hmm. you know, safe introduction to the country. It was Colombia, after all, one of the biggest drug cartel bases in the world. I began reporting on this because I'm asked to help explain what in the world happened. And what in the world happened was that a group of agents had followed the pattern of many agents before them. They believed that, you know, they worked their tails off day in, day out, you know, stood overnight in stairwells of hotels to protect the president, had plenty of terrible assignments that made them sacrifice key moments with their families and fun in their general lives. Some people missed being the best man in their friend's wedding because of their job assignments, missed their children's birthdays and anniversaries with their wives. And they turned these international trips often into kind of, I don't know, like blow off steam, fun trips. Uh, it was a time to let loose. The animal house metaphor is overused, but some of the cases of this sounds, it very much sounds like fraternity on the road behavior. Yes. And, and I learned a phrase during this reporting called wheels up, rings off, you know, and Air Force One has taken off. Everybody's going to have sort of a lot of fun, especially these alpha males are going to have a lot of fun with women who are not their wives or their life partners. And that was a part of the culture for a subset of the Secret Service. They worked hard and they partied hard. They could hold a lot of liquor. <laughs> and this night, they seemed to not be able to hold it as well because there was just so much of it. Agents told me that they were, you know, really, really depressed about this coming out, but they were honest in saying that it had happened many, many times before and not become public. So the issue really was that it became public and it had to be addressed. In brief, what was the main result of this? Uh, what actually changed at the Secret Service as a result of this very public scandal? I have to say that despite all the talk of reform and doing something and making a difference, despite Director Mark Sullivan's claims at the time that he took this so seriously, very little changed as a result of this. The service got a huge black eye. The director tried mm -hmm. to, you know, get tough and, and essentially say to Congress and to the White House, all of which were really angry you know, heads were going to roll. He was going to fire people to show how seriously he took that. And he did uh, move to force people to resign, taking away their security clearances. Very little in the culture of the service changed because the service had reached a point of arrogance in which there was a subset again of this group who felt they were above the law. They'd gotten away with a lot of things in the past. Supervisors looked out for other supervisors Agents looked out for their bosses and their colleagues. 
They all worked to try to cover up things that would be bad for the brand. And what I learned was basically the firing of these agents was really an attempt to protect the director's job. And then more bad news would be covered up going forward. You spend a lot of time in your reporting looking at the directors of the Secret Service and what kinds of changes they propose to make, how they interact with, obviously, Congress for funding reasons, as well as with the president and those around the president. But I have to ask, in a larger sense, given everything you've mentioned, does the leadership of the Secret Service really matter if there is so little hope for fundamental change on the the core problems with the mission in this environment? No one is perfect. I, I would never want to be the director of the Secret Service because I think the job is, is impossible. And also, you know, in addition to be impossible because you're caught between Congress and a White House, you know, a political messaging and a budget shortfall and just an impossible assignment. In addition to that, it's, it's just a really challenging job to manage this enormous entity that has an enormous and impossible mission. I want to stress something, which is the Secret Service, we all know it's responsible for the protection of the president's life, but their mission is so much larger. They juggle so much more. 40 other people are protected by the Secret Service. The Secret Service now protects all events that could be the subject of terror, mass gatherings at Olympics and Super Bowls, inaugurations. They're responsible for cyber hacking investigations, financial crimes, part of the legacy investigations that created the service in the first place in 1865. Their mission is just a plate of juggling China that's about to to crash around them. So the job is so hard. I have to say that the Secret Service has got to get on a plan with the Congress and the White House to redefine its mission in order for it to be possible to deliver. If you're going to have a zero-fail mission, make sure the delivery is perfect. And that right now is impossible given the size. To your direct question, though, David, there have been directors that are sort of stronger and more forceful than others. You know, while Director Brian Stafford, a director under Clinton, you know, had a reputation of being kind of a person who had his own personal foibles, you know, had been in a relationship with a White House, a pretty blonde White House staffer. He was exceptionally forceful about the Secret Service's budget. And he made, you know, a lot of noise to get the money he needed for what, you know, was called the well-being of the agent's and the officers who were getting so burned out, they were fleeing to other federal agencies. He made a real difference and a dent because he would not take no for an answer. There have been other directors that just weren't as forceful, and you kind of can see why. You are essentially protecting the person you're asking to get money from. You are protecting a person who is both your, your connection to the budget office and your client, but is also somebody you want to keep happy. So it's hard to piss off that person, but I think you have to piss off that person to do the job. And 
it's hard to find directors that are willing to do that. Sure. Especially given just bureaucratic politics, uh, especially in our system, you have the president seeing the Secret Service for what it is, which is it is a cost center. It's not giving any political revenue to the president. It's not gaining any political capital. And when you have a Secret Service director coming in saying, look, we're going to need hundreds of millions of dollars more and we're going to need them fast or we're going to fail in our mission. Well, most presidents aren't seeking to have larger and larger budgets that they can't pay for. In fact, the the trend is the opposite. You want to appear to be cutting unnecessary expenses. And here's somebody coming in saying, I want you to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. Now we're talking about a budget in the billions of dollars and there will be no benefit for any constituency that will get you a vote in the next election. That's not an appeal that works for most politicians, (laughs) uh, even if they do feel, as you mentioned, Bush 41 and other presidents have very much appreciated their Secret Service agents. Nobody appreciates that line item in the budget. Absolutely. And you know, one thing that an agent told me was, he said, if I could sit down with the president and be honest, I would say, stop treating us like we're an agency that is your agency. All presidents view the Secret Service ultimately only in their role as protecting him. You know, Obama mm-hmm. didn't look at the agency yeah. and say, oh, I, I'm interested in your cyber hacking work. Right. President Trump didn't look at the agency and say, oh, interesting how you protect the United Nations General Assembly every year and 150 mm-hmm. foreign heads of state. They look at it as their agency. So forgive me, back to that agent. He said, I wish I could just tell the president, stop looking at us as the agency that protects you. Look at us as public servants who have a job and you need to help us do our job. Give us those tools, help define our mission. Make sure it's possible. Make sure it's physically possible. You know, there are so many interesting stories, disturbing stories, in fact, from the past 15 years or so of how... White House security in particular has been breached, not through massive assaults that you would see in Hollywood from well-planned North Korean or terrorist hit squads in Brad Thor novels, but just lone wolves, just people deciding I'm going to jump the fence and get in. Now, you can't describe all of the details that go into this. There are some very extensive security measures and high technology that's being used to protect the perimeter around the White House. But many times, these things fail. And I'll ask you to walk through just one case, because I think it is perhaps the least known of the major security breaches in the last 15 years. And it's perhaps the most interesting, because it wasn't somebody who was out to harm the president. It was somebody who claimed he was there to help the president, to alert him to some problems that he wanted to bring up. And this was Jonathan Tran in, I believe, March 2017, not long after Trump came into the White House. Talk through that incident as a way of highlighting how it is that the rings of security around the White House can fail and allow someone to come right up to the windows of the White House or even walk in. David, I'm so glad you focus on this incident in 2017. It is just weeks after President Trump has been inaugurated, and it is shocking for many reasons, um, but I'll give you the two. One is that it happens after a very similar episode in September 2014, 
which ultimately led to the firing of the Secret Service director. A very similar right. incident where somebody gets inside, runs inside in a you know pair of plastic Crocs, gets all the way inside the building. And it's so disappointing and so disheartening to everyone in the Secret Service and to the White House. So shocking, like a break-in, that uh, the director loses her job, Julia Pearson. And everyone vows, after a series of blue-ribbon panels and special congressional investigations and internal DHS investigation and investigations and IG reports, this will never happen again. But what happens three years later, two and a half years later, it happens again. So as I said, Donald Trump is just weeks after his inauguration. He's in his residence watching television on a Friday night. It's cold and rainy outside, unusually cold and dark, rainy, close to midnight. Jonathan Tran hops over a barrier on the Treasury Department complex, which is actually part of the Secret Service's territory to protect and is next to the White House compound. He gets over that and a a sensor alarm tells officers on duty, Secret Service officers, that somebody's breached the compound and they come running. They don't find anybody. He then makes it over two more barriers and very casually strolls sits down for a while to tie his shoes, strolls over to the east grounds, gets up to the window, jiggles a door, looks inside to see if he can get in there that way. Luckily, the door is locked. (laughs) (laughs) To think that somebody could get that close and to be doing those things, is it just blows the mind given what the security looks like to the average bystander at the White House. Absolutely. It was... It was gobsmacking. And, you know, it's funny how the Secret Service handled it, but I'll get to that in a minute. Just gobsmacking. He wanders around to the South Lawn. He looks up towards, you know, a dozen different entryways and and staircases that could take him to the president's residence, potentially. Um, But he ultimately, after 17 minutes, is discovered by an officer who says, you know, basically, who goes there? How did you get here? Jonathan Tran says, um, I jumped over the fence and he is stopped. The shocking second part of this is how this happened. Not that it did happen, but how it happened. Numerous sensors on the fence lines weren't working. A camera responsible for sort of capturing where intruders are going um, also is, is on the fritz alarms that should have been working in what's called the JOC, the Joint Operations Command Center, also weren't working properly. And finally, that officer who says, what are you doing here? When he calls for backup, his radio isn't working properly. And so all their officers who could have come and helped him and would have learned that he had detained the jumper have no idea because they can't hear it. His radio is not working properly. You know, these four things sort of just aren't bad enough to talk about. You know, they're just shocking. America deserves better on this 18-acre compound that is supposed to be the most secure in the world. It's shocking that you you call your book Zero Fail, and yet here you had successive failures of things that, while not necessarily easy, these are the things that should not have been hard compared to so many other things that the Secret Service has to do. And yet we had complete fail of all of those in a row. Complete fail and and a follow-up fail, right? I agree. And, you know, President Trump doesn't 
doesn't make the situation any better because his reaction the next morning when news leaks that this has happened, his reaction is, oh, Secret Service got the guy, very sad uh, situation, but, um, you know, Secret Service did a great job. And the Secret Service, I remember that day, the spokesperson telling me, you know, we're not going to discuss this anymore. You know, we have no information to provide you. Thanks very much. Because they feel like essentially the president has given them cover. Meanwhile, the then Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, John Kelly, who later becomes Chief of Staff in the White House, he is not feeling like everything went well. He wants an answer for how in the world this happened. And he commands that the acting director, Billy Callahan, come in and show him what exactly failed. And he's not pleased when he sees the videos, when he sees the sort of lack of urgency, when he sees, you know, just a a sort of lackadaisical approach to an alarm that there's been a breach at the White House while the president is home. And his feeling, uh, as we learned from our sources, is that the acting director isn't taking this seriously enough and basically says, yeah, well, we were hoping to replace some of those sensors and alarms that weren't working. We didn't get it in this budget time frame. We hope we'll get it when the next time comes around, the next budget. And this really shakes up the secretary uh, who feels that things are not right and, and need to be treated as a much more sort of terrifying problem rather mm -hmm. than uh, something to be handled in the next budget cycle. To close out, let me build on that and, and get to a larger point. It seems that the Secret Service over the past several decades has had this recurring cycle of problems and whether it's Congress or the leadership of the Secret Service itself realizing that some things need to change, there's that recognition. And then the solution is almost always, well, we just need more people. We need more money and we need to throw more resources at these problems. But a thread that runs through your writings on the Secret Service is that some of the problems are not inherently financial. Some of the problems are cultural. And I'm wondering, coming away from all of this, what you would say if you were to be paid as the, the highly compensated consultant to the United <laughs> States Secret Service, to the Congressional Oversight Committees, perhaps to the Commander-in-Chief himself, if you were to be paid to come in and say, look, we need some fundamental reforms, here are three good ideas for the ways that the Secret Service can better fulfill its core missions, not just protecting the president, but others, while also being more efficient and more sustainable given its missions. Uh, what would some of those reforms be that would at least warrant consideration in your mind? You know, I'm going to rely on the men and women who are standout agents and officers in their field. I was directed to them because they are considered the bright lights, the big thinkers, and the people who've really experienced this on the front line and have some ideas, but have been swatted away because the services, you know, MO is to stick with the status quo. Look, we've always done it this way. It's always worked. We're going to stick with this. Those people already know the answer to your question. And they completely persuaded me. 
The answers are simply boiled down into two things. One, throwing more people at it absolutely is not the solution. The solution is paring down the mission, recognizing that while the Secret Service may bosses may like to keep the legacy mission of investigating financial crimes and cyber hacking and counterfeit monies, that that is a distraction from the core mission of protecting the you know, solidity and, and stability of our democracy. And that the multi-headed assignments of the Secret Service have to be reviewed carefully and pared down in order for that mission to be zero fail. Secondly, this group would also argue that the service has to stop acting like a mom and pop shop. You know, that was a phrase that, again, another standout supervisor agent told me that it's always run that way, but now it's too big for that kind of mode. It has to move into a place of policy and procedures and rigorous business-minded strategies, a strategic mission every year that's re-sculpted to try to focus all of the resources on the mission and putting them in a triage form where the most important mission gets the most money, the most time, the most energy and human power. But I would say as a corollary to that, the service has also resisted having outsiders in that business-minded mission. And it needs experts Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. contracting. It needs experts in IT. It needs experts in HR. Promoting agents to do those jobs is a recipe for disaster unless you luck out and that particular person that gets promoted has a special talent for that. So far, it's been a recipe for disaster. Right on. Well, thank you for discussing just the tip of this very interesting iceberg with me. Carol, I appreciate it. David, I've really enjoyed it. You asked such good questions. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, and help us publicize the podcast so other people can hear these interesting conversations. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pachia-Howell. Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.